Hello, everyone. This is Simon Jacobson, and we will be speaking about what a civilized society looks like. So I welcome you all in cyberspace and everybody, wherever you may be. It's always an honor and pleasure to share a few words, especially that we're just coming a few days. will be Shavuot, the holiday, that event that celebrates a historic and maybe the greatest event in history, the Sinai Revelation that took place 3,330 years ago, which will be this coming Sunday. So we're now in the days as the Bible, the Torah talks about the preparations for it. And I phrase it often that Sinai brought civilization to the world, and hence the title. So let's pose a few questions, as I always do, some provocative questions. How would you define civilization? Do you think that the standards for a civilized society are the same today as they were in the past? Uh, for example, would we consider the Greek, the ancient Greek culture, would we consider them civilized? And how would they consider us? Is it something that's subjective based on times, based on more is based on different cultural uh, attitudes, some things that may be random, some things are arbitrary, then the absolute standards that define a, and criteria that would define a civilization. Which words would you describe civilized? How would you define civilized? Cultured, educated, ethical, enlightened, refined, sophisticated, advanced, or something else? I think these questions are very important because they frame the subject in a way that we can actually address and see what civilization is because it's a word that's overused. We say modern civilization, we say ancient civilization, middle-aged civilization, different civilizations. When in fact, when it comes down to it, we may have very strong disagreements what civilization even means. Well, one society may consider to be very, considered to be civilized. Another society may consider, to be, may consider that to be primitive. For example, in the ancient Greeks, there was a, uh, uh, the tradition was that if a child that was born handicapped or mentally, uh, mentally limited in some way, it was a benevolent, an act of civilized benevolence to actually kill that child, to both protect the child, to, to preserve the family from anguish, to preserve society, and, and the child from having extra pain in its life. Today, we would prosecute someone for doing that. Is that civilized behavior? The Jews were criticized for not being civilized because they refused to do it. Just as an example. And you can go down the list of many, many other such things. So that's what we're going to speak about in the context, of course, of Sinai, uh, what really civilization means. And to really broaden the question, the question really is, what, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to uh, live up to our higher standards, highest standards? So that's an excellent question. Now, if you take the approach, for instance, that we human beings are here by accident and there's no real purpose and design to life, that doesn't mean we can't be good people. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be moral people. But there's nothing fundamentally uh, purposeful and meaningful about our lives. So you can make the argument that what is wrong with an attitude that everybody just lives whatever is comfortable for them, whatever gives them pleasure. Now, of course, there's other people. So we need to have rules, red lights and green lights, and civilized rules, civil rules, to be able to coexist and not kill each other. But these are man-made rules that are superimposed. But the bottom line is that everybody can do as they see fit. And what does civilization mean? Civilization means coexistence. Coexistence. Listen, we see there are benefits in cooperation. The, the radical evolutionists, for instance, like Richard Dawkins and others, make the case that cooperation is good for the species, and therefore people will be cooperative, and cooperation ultimately creates a civilization. Where it's not just dog eats dog and everybody's out for their own. We understand, and we use our rational minds and, and our understanding of each other that in order for a society to thrive, for each of us to thrive, we need to have certain guidelines. Now, there was a time where those guidelines were not enforced, enforceable, because there were no systems of justice. And that's what some of the people call would be an uncivilized society, where it was a primitive, um, uh, basically survival of the fittest. And basically there was no laws and no law and order, and there was no therefore civilization. Or you could argue that's also civilization. When the animal kingdom, when predators go out in the wild to hunt, 
That's part of the natural balance. As a matter of fact, they keep the balance going because if they didn't do that, there would be a proliferation and an uh, overabundance of the, pre- the prey, which multiply in large numbers, and they keep those uh, populations at bay due to the fact that they do um, consume and they do predit on them. I don't know if it's predator words, predator do predits. Um, either way, but the point being, so it's part of the balance. You could say that's part of a civilized society as well. Now, of course, when it comes to humans, when you think of what the Germans and the Nazis did in their mind, in their distorted and obscene mind, they gave a whole justification of philosophy that there are human beings that are subhumans, or they're not even humans, and they have to be, they have to be amputated for the health of the, or the, the healthy organism, the Aryan the Superman, the model, the ultimate model. So then, of course, they thought that civilization. And they did not see it as some type of primitive, barbaric behavior. They saw it simply as the necessity to cleanse, ethnic cleansing, in the most extreme possible way. Now, of course, any of us think about it, they say, well, who were you to make that decision? But in their mind, they would have cleansed civilization, and then they would have had the uber Mensch, the Uber race, which is the Aryan-German race that would dominate the world. Those that remained that were uh, from other ethnic or other, region, or other parts of the world would be their slaves. Many they would have eliminated altogether, like the Jews and the Gypsies and anyone else they saw as, as uh, absolutely not fitting. And they called that civilization. Now we go with these attitudes. Obviously, anybody can come up with type of theory. I'm sure I can come up right now with five different theories, what I call civilization. Now you could decide that these are few people, elite people. These are the, these are the most civilized and the most, uh, the most appropriate people to live. And everybody else is negligible. I mean, you have these different science fiction stories about how superior races come, aliens come to this world, and they see the human race as being inferior. Machines can see us as inferior. There's that line in The Matrix where he says that the human being is a parasite. Like a bacteria, wherever they go, they, they, they gobble up and they destroy resources, and they're constantly just satisfying their own selfish needs. So civilization is a very, very arbitrary word that can be used in so many different ways, and that's why it becomes increasingly difficult to say what is a civilized society. Now, yes, in the United States and in many of our free countries, or all our free countries, there are standards that have been established and now institutionalized and legalized, constitutions, law enforcement, that define what civilization is. But where did they get these concepts from? Would you be surprised to know they got it from Sinai? They got it from the Hebrews, from the Jews. I've just finished reading a Hebrew Repub- The Hebrew Republic, an excellent book. I always quote it, On Two Wings by uh, Michael Novak. So on the, he- the Hebrew Republic, another book by, um, you can look it up. Making the case, an academic case, that this country, and basically modern freedoms are all based on the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew texts. And as they became more accessible to the mainstream, that's what shaped and defined modern society. Not the Enlightenment, but these ideas. In the Hebrew Republic, for example, he makes the strong case, the three key things that shaped the modern world was, number one, that monarchy was not an option, a free government, people, a government by the people for the people. Number two, the idea of redistribution of wealth, that that was sanctioned from above, as you see it in the Torah the Bible. And number three, the idea of tolerance of other faiths and other religions and other people. Basically, human rights. And shows how, shows, makes a tremendous case how these ideas became those that shaped the thinkers and ultimately the leaders that would shape the new governments that were unfold, that were emerging in the 17th and 18th century, centuries. On two wings, he makes the case that uh, the founding fathers based their ideas on the metaphysics of the Torah, as he puts it. So these are excellent books to read, and they all bring us back to this 3,330-year-old event that took place at Sinai. Because that's where the mandate was given for these principles that are shaping the modern world. And that's why it's so vital to understand Shavuot and Sinai in that context, because what we learn from that is the roots and the genesis and the origins of what civilization is. And this may sound a little surprising if you start thinking most people's civilization, again, would be civil behavior and many things we can agree on today, but we didn't always agree on it. And even today you can have arguments. 
So you really have to get to the heart of what really defines a civil society, which really gets to the heart of what defines a human being, what's expected of a human being. So I go back to what I said. If humans and life in general has no purpose and meaning, so then it's a matter of survival. But survival entails also cooperation and therefore civilization. However, if, you, if life has purpose and design, then civilization is defined by human beings living up to the purpose and design of their creation, of their existence. And that is what Sinai contributed. And you'll see, the founding fathers, though they were deists, and they believed in the separation of church and state, yet in the Declaration of Independence, they did not hesitate to say all men are created equal, created, and endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. Now you can ask, why do you need the word creator? Create, it just creates problems, no pun intended, because now we're talking about a God, a creator, with a capital C. They could have said all men are born equal, or all men are equal. As they say, oh, these, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold the truth to be self-evident, that all men are, are equal, and have inalienable rights, endowed by the creator, they added. I've asked some legal scholars, some constitutional legal scholars about this, no one gave an adequate answer. I have my theory. My theory is this. Maybe someone has written or said it. If you know someone that has, I'd love to see that. The theory is because they understood a very important p- principle. That if you don't put in the word creator, and you don't say created, you could always argue, like I said, that maybe we're all here by accident, and that maybe there is no fundamental birthright called rights. Rights are what we give each other based on mutual benefit. And just as we give each other rights, we can take away each other's rights. However, once you attribute it to a creator, once you attribute it that we're created equal and that it's endowed by the creator, nobody is a creator. Nobody can come and say, I'm the creator or I'm the representative of the creator. That creates an equal level, play, an equal level playing field that everybody has equal rights and nobody can take it away because only the creator has given it to us, and each of us have it as a birthright by virtue of our being created and born in this world by a creator. Take that away, and then you could always make an argument, you know what, maybe there's a segment of Americans that should not be treated equally, for whatever reason. So the creator was vital, even for people who were not necessarily coming from a religious point of view. They understood the rational rationale and the rational reasoning for adding that into it, And that takes us back to Sinai. Sinai was a divine revelation where God says, I am your God. And think about this, the first of the Ten Commandments. I am your God that took you out of Egypt. And then it doesn't even say took you out of Egypt. And then continues and then the laws that we consider to be the basis of civilization. Do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not covet. Sometimes we call, we, we talk about the seven Noahide laws. They're basically the Ten Commandments minus Shabbat and honoring parents. But they're also the same ideas of what's called civilization. And what are those seven laws? The seven laws, again, is not to curse, to, to, not, to not deny God, God, not to curse God, pro, respect for people's property, meaning not stealing, respect for people's life, not murder. That's four. Respect for the environment, Avram do not eat an animal that is alive, meaning taking off a limb from the animal, being sensitivity to our to creatures and to the environment. That's five. Sexual, um, uh, sexual uh, avoiding sexual deviances, a sexual healthy life, meaning not adultery and so on, and other abuses, sexual abuse, incest, etc. And finally, number seven is to establish laws of justice. Houses of justice, I should say. Courts, courthouses, to enforce laws. And that's considered civilization. The Ten Commandments, as I said, you have the basics, a little diff, some variations, but essentially they all start with, however, God, the Creator, as the Founding Fathers understood, because that gives it the absolute element where nobody can have a loophole and say, maybe I have a different interpretation. So what are these laws, what are they, when you think about them in overall, what do they ultimately lead to? They lead to a life of virtue. A life of stuck and mishpat, to put in the words of the Bible about Abraham. Because Abraham, of course, was the first advocate of this, as the Bible documents. And he taught it to his family, to his children, and to his community. And ultimately, he started catching on. And ultimately, his children, which include Isaac and Yishmael, Jacob and Esau, which they would become the progenitors 
and the ancestors of the Jewish world, of course, but also of the Roman Christian Western world, and, and Ishmael, of course, of the Arab Muslim world, and in many ways you could say even of the Far Eastern world because Abraham sent his children to the East with, uh, with secrets. Not to go into that right now, it's not so relevant. The point being, however, is that Abraham perpetuated these teachings of what? Of social justice. To do kindness, to do virtue and justice with each other. Why? Not because it's just a nice thing to do, because if I do justice with you, you'll do justice with me, and that's why we cooperate, that's how we survive. Because it is the purpose of why we're here. Life is driven by mission, and civilization means living up to the mission for which we were, driven, which we were created. And we were created to transform this material world into a home for the divine. That is the mission. So civilization is strictly defined by that. It has many derivatives, many secondary elements to it, but its essence is driven by that point. So when we talk about civilization, I would now add the word healthy civilization. Just like civilization consists of a community or many communities, a healthy human being, a healthy civilization, is a civilization of many healthy human beings. So what defines a healthy human being? So let's go back to analogies that I use often, the engineer analogy. You build a machine. Engineer builds a very complex machine. What defines the health of this machine, the welfare, the good welfare of this machine, is following the engineer's intentions, following the operator's manual that the engineer wrote that went together with the machine that says, this is what you should use the machine for, this is what you should do to upkeep the machine. This is what you should avoid doing to not cause damage. This is what you should do to keep the machine humming along. Everything about the machine is written in the operator's manual. That's called the healthy machine. Civilization is many healthy machines. I don't mean the word emphasis on machine. I'm just using it as an analogy. But many of them working together the same way with a healthy organism. Look at the human body. What's a healthy human body when each, org- when each organ, when each limb, when each system, when each detail, every fiber of our existence, every cell is following and doing what it was created for. That, that of course, allows for a healthy organism to function. The blood circulates properly. The nervous system is functioning well. The muscles, the neurological systems can go on and on. What is an infection? What is illness? What is disease? What is sickness? When something invades either internally or from externally, or due to other factors, that invades, that what? Upsets the machine from working properly. The same thing is the human psyche, psychologically and emotionally. The emotional needs, when there's love, human beings need love. So what defines a healthy organism? Just like there's physical rules for a healthy organism, there's also what we call spiritual or psycho-spiritual and emotional rules as well. As we prepare for Shavuos, you may be familiar, I talk about it often, the 49 days of the counting, 7 times 7 of what? Emotion, our emotional spectrum divides to 7 times 7 emotions, 49 in all, but 7 basic ones, building blocks, chesed, love and kindness, gvura, discipline, teferis, compassion, balance, netzach, endurance, ambition, determination, hoid, humility, yielding, so you saw foundation, build, bonding, connecting, and seven, malchus, dignity, sovereignty. As I discussed at length in my book called The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer, it's actually not at length, every day is a short piece, but it's more, it elaborates on each one of them, helps us examine. When you follow those guidelines, you're aligning your emotional structure toward the healthy one that is expected, the model that works best which includes all these seven emotions and their interactivity with them. That's make the seven times seven, the love within love, the discipline within love, the compassion within love, the endurance within love, the yielding, the humility within love, the bonding within love, the dignity within love. And the same thing with discipline, all seven. As elaborated there, you could also find it online. If you're still interested, the Omer, my Omer app, very popular app this year, we completely refurbished it. It's really, really cool. But it's used all year round even though the counting actually is a 49-day counting, which will conclude this Saturday. The last count will be Friday night. And, um, but, that, but that describes what a healthy organism is. 
when a healthy organism is healthy in its own, then it can interact with other healthy organisms and the sum total of that, or more than the sum total. The synergy of that creates a healthy civilization. So we have an operator's manual. We have a blueprint. The blueprint, yes, the Ten Commandments, the seven Noahide laws. These are blueprints that these are, these are, this is a blueprint that defines what makes us work best. Not just what, what is nice or what God wants or what, as I said before, the cooperation due to mutual benefit, so survival is necessary for us to cooperate, but the fundamental ingredients that define a healthy human being and ultimately a healthy, communi- a healthy family, then a healthy community, and a healthy society, and healthy a nation, and ultimately a healthy civilization. And they all have to be consistent. There's no such thing as healthy human being and an unhealthy civilization, or, an, or a healthy civilization and unhealthy human beings. The units are what define the whole. And when the units are healthy, the whole becomes healthy. Obviously, there are elements that are focused on the units, and there are elements that are focused on the whole. Like, for example, you need guidelines that govern everybody. But those guidelines cannot undermine and or annihilate the individuality and the health of an individual. If anyone makes the argument that for the good of the whole, some people have to be compromised, you know there's a problem. Same thing like in the human body. Think of that. The good of the whole, any organ or limb has to be compromised. God forbid there was an infection or there's a, there's a, 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 a crisis and you may have to save the whole body, you may have to, God, God forbid, amputate. But that's under extreme circumstances. But in a healthy situation, the healthier each organ, organ is, the healthier each limb, the healthier the whole body is, and vice versa. So there's a synergy that includes the individual, each one doing what it has to do best, and also complementing and working with all others. So if you were to ask a healthy society, I mentioned before a bunch of words. Let's go back to those words. Cultured. Cultured? It may be a piece of it. But cultured, if it doesn't have ethical, even if it has educated and enlightened and sophisticated and advanced, yes, that would be the definition of a, maybe a, a high-functioning civilization, meaning producing a lot, but is it a healthy civilization? Can a civilization have no ethics? And as I said, fundamental ethics? The founding fathers made the argument that you don't have civil rights. If you don't have human rights, everything else fails, even if you have the best universities. And if you have the nicest culture and music and art. And people are enlightened, but if they're lack and sophisticated. You know. Just because you have a lot of knowledge doesn't mean, like, like the famous uh, Oscar Wilde said, that there are people who uh, know the value of everything, the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Or today, it's not that we have a higher rate of illiteracy, a lower rate of illiteracy. It's only illiterate people know how to read. Just because we have education does not mean that we have focus. Just because people make money does not mean that they're healthy. So civilization directly goes to the soul of the matter. The soul of a civilization is the soul of the human being, a healthy soul and a healthy body fulfilling a mission and purpose that goes far beyond just the functionality so we're not just talking about making a machine function well. We're talking about making a machine thrive, living up to its purpose. Can you call a healthy civilization, for example, one where children are hurt, even though some people may benefit from it? Can you call a healthy civilization where people are not actualizing their potential? Or some are, and they repress others? Absolutely not. So Sinai gave this blueprint to the mankind, to the human race, to the, through the Jewish people, but it was for the entire human race. And it took time. It took thousands of years, actually, for it to take hold. The Hebrew Republic, as he puts it in the book, the United States is only 242 years old. First institutionalized government that institutionalized these principles. This doesn't mean there weren't ethical leaders and there weren't benevolent despots in the past, but it was not part of the mainstream. The concept of charity, to the point of the billions of dollars of humanitarian aid, and the billions and trillions of dollars given out in charity today, unprecedented. And the list goes on. This doesn't mean we have a perfect society or civilization, but we have principles that are grounded and rooted in very fundamental foundations 
that go back 3,330 years. So when you talk about civilization in that context, you're talking about this healthy organism, and there are guidelines. Now you may say, I don't know the guidelines. So this is the time we study. This is why every year we celebrate and honor this holiday. I would say it's even a universal holiday, because at Sinai we're given also the laws of the universal laws of civilization. As Maimonides writes, the end of chapter 8 of his laws of Melochim, of kings, the, 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 the obligation not just to teach Jews to teach each other about their laws, but also to inspire and influence the entire world, that these teachings were given at Sinai. Why Sinai? Because you need that foundation. All men are created equal. Created. By the, and by virtue of the creator are endowed with inalienable rights. And everything flows from there. You don't find anywhere in the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution the focus that the mission of this nation is to create physical, material prosperity. Because they understood. Give people those rights. Cherish them. They will then thrive. Put them in a prison. Use them as slaves or serfs. You may get, some individuals may be enriched by it, but you're not going to have a healthy civilization. So we have the guidelines and they have already spread all over the world, even to the children of Yishmael and to the children of Esau, as the Talmud says, that God went by, by Sinai, he went to, and offered it also, not just to Abraham's grandsons and children that came through, the, the, through Isaac and Jacob, but also through the children, to the children of Yishmael and the children of Esau. And they rejected it at the time because they said, we can't live up to these standards, it's too much for us came to the Jewish people, they accepted, Nasa v'nishma. We will do and then we will understand. So the question is asked, why then did God offer it to them? And what would happen if they said yes? The Jews had just suffered 210 years in a horrible genocidal exile in Egypt. And if they said yes, no, it's all over, what? So why did God offer it to them? So the Zohar and Hasidic teachings teach because offering it to them was to redeem the sparks and to elevate them and ultimately prepare them for the day when they would ultimately accept them. And that, look what happened. A little over a thousand years later, you have the birth of Christianity. With the Western, Roman, Western world started embracing principles given at Sinai. So the request of the children of Yishmael and Yishmael, and I'm sorry, the children of Esau, and Esau is... His grandson was Remi, Megadil Zu Remi, as Rashi says at the end of chapter, chapter in, in Vayishlach, Rome, would ultimately embrace, the children of Esau would embrace what was offered to them. So it was like priming them. They were not ready yet. And a little while later in the 6th century, you have the birth of, of Islam. By whom? By the Arabs who are the grandchildren of Yishmael. So the Bnei Yishmael also ultimately accepted it. And ever since, there's been battles and difficulties to the point of the, the conflicts of civilizations, clash of civilizations, as Huntington puts it. And what? Ultimately, the Christian world was tamed after the Crusades and after their aggressions. And the Muslim world will also be tamed. Because that's the direction, the trajectory we're going to. So you could even say the events going on in the world today Iran, North Korea, Russia. Though we are not yet at a final resting place, but we are close to it. Because we're at a place where we've seen these humanitarian values given at Sinai slowly, slowly permeate the world and turn it into a civilized world. So when you talk about the Messianic age, the end of days, which we are on the threshold of, we're talking about the ultimate civilization. The ultimate health of individuals and of collective. As Maimonides and his cites and cited so at length in many of the prophecies, beautiful citations. For example, there will be no longer evil and destruction on my holy mountain. Why? Because the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. An age of knowledge, but not just knowledge, not just information revolution, divine knowledge, refined knowledge, knowledge that feeds the moral and ethical and spiritual standards, highest standards. Because you could have a lot of knowledge and still be, a, a, um, still be um, corrupt. Divine knowledge. 
Another expression, the lamb will lie with the wolf, which can be both metaphorical and literal, meaning a peaceful coexistence. The plowshares, the swords will be turned into plowshares, like it says on the Isaiah wall right across the United Nations. Some of these have already been being fulfilled, where armies and military are helping humanitarian aid, food shipments, dealing with crisis and natural disasters, and so on. Another one, Ozepech, all then, all the nations will be transformed and speak a clear language, the language of God. This doesn't mean there won't be many different nations. It doesn't say anywhere they'll all become one faith of one, or one, of one uh, culture or one nation. Diverse nations, but serving one God. And this house, the temple, the third temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. And on and on and on. As you read the verses, and you don't need any big inter- deep interpretations, you see, firstly, how the world has been gravitating, how the world has been evolving toward that direction, and how we are close to it, because we see how much it's taken a hold. There's still plenty of work to be done, especially on the personal level. So we're at a final frontier. The personal level, obviously, our own personal homes and lives and relationships are not in good shape. But that doesn't mean the stage is not set. The stage is set. The pipelines are there. We have technology to distribute the message anywhere, everywhere, anytime, anywhere, any piece of information. So it's just that we need to be the ones that actually are the ambassadors that carry the message to each other and create the ripple effect. That's the final frontier, the individual. But the pipeline is there. The pipelines are there. The information is there. The blueprint is there. And the question is, will we rise to the occasion? Are we going to rise to the occasion? So this idea of, the civil, of civilization, to, to go back, what a civilized society looks like, we have a far more civilized society today than ever before. But there's still work to be done, as I said. So we come as we come to these days before Shavuot, before we uh, honor the 3,330th anniversary, and we recreate we don't just commemorate, we recreate those events. And we're reminded about and charged with that mission. Individually, every one of us can touch our sphere of influence. And that's where you begin. You begin on a small scale. We can talk to them about this with our children. What does it mean to be a civil human being? What does it mean to be a refined human being? What does it mean to be a divine human being? And they're this, all the same thing. Living up to the divine image in which you were created. In other words, instead of choosing a selfish, self-absorbed, self-interest-driven life, you choose a service-driven life, a life that serves something greater than yourself. Instead of materialism being an end in itself, you see it as a stepping stone towards spiritual growth, towards psychological, emotional development. And that affects everything we do, from every email and text and Instagram and Facebook and Google that we touch that many times a day, from our seemingly casual and superficial interactions as we commute or we meet strangers at a coffee shop or in the street. And of course, the more, the more serious relationships in our homes, at work, our families, our communities. All it takes is us redirecting the arrow instead of me, me, me turning it outward and saying what am I here to give what can I give how can I fulfill my mission and that's how you fulfill also your own needs and that is what we are charged to do so to say let's look around let other people create civilization that's not no, no we have to look at ourselves at the end of the day this world the 7 billion people is made up of 7 billion individuals like you and I that's where it begins And we know today with science, the butterfly effect, that a little gust of wind in Kansas can create a typhoon in Singapore. The idea that one little act can release an energy that ripples through all of existence. In the words of Maimonides, that a person has to always see the world as equally balanced, good and bad. And their one good deed tips the scale, and brings personal and global redemption. 
These are the attitudes we have to take. And what better time as we honor 3,330 years? 3,330 years. What have we been through? And we're here, standing. We're here standing and declaring that Sinai, the time has come for Sinai to reclaim its true prominence to being the biggest event in history and one that has ultimately prevailed. Again, despite all odds, and now time to reclaim it and pronounce for all to hear from all the mountain tops and valleys, from the east and the west, the north and the south, to hear, as it was then 3,330 years ago, as the sound came out of the Ten Commandments, it said the entire earth was silent in anticipation. Birds did not chirp. Everything came in airy silence because the universe was sensing and feeling in its DNA that something momentous was taking place. What was momentous taking place? The rules of civilization, what makes a healthy organism work. The world, the, the world works in its best possible way. To use another way it's put sometimes, it says that before Sinai, there was a schism, a split between the, the heaven and earth, between that which is above and that which is below, between matter and spirit. The true E, e equals MC squared began then. Because at Sinai, as God descended and Moses ascended, of course it means it wasn't just a physical thing. It meant that heaven and earth kissed. But not just a one-time thing. It set in motion and and empowered us and gave us the capacity to fuse heaven and earth, to fuse matter and energy, to fuse matter and spirit, to spiritualize the material world. Up till that point you could have argued, as some may still argue, you can only have transcendence on weekends when you compartmentalize. Because we live in a world of survival. We need to survive. Transcendence, spiritual transcendence is a form of either escapism or designated times. There are those that, that, or you have to live an ascetic lifestyle. Others say, no, we could find in the Protestant work ethic like the Calvinists that in the material world we can just be fine people. But the two, to have deep spiritual experience while living a material life doesn't seem possible. Sinai came and said it's absolutely possible. You can live in the most material existence and still experience transcendence. When you recognize that the material existence is a stepping stone, that matter is really energy, but you have to release it. You have to use it for that purpose. And that's the ultimate goal. Not just escape into the spiritual or resignation into the material, a fusion, total fusion and integration. That's what Sinai taught us. And how do we do that? By living our lives ethically, kindly, justly, in this material world. Yes, there are times we need. We need a Shabbat. We need a holiday. We need a weekend. We need time away. That's when we recharge. But then you come back into the world that that was once a very hostile world and still has challenges. And we don't shy away. We enter with enthusiasm, with excitement, with courage and confidence that we can transform the universe into a world that can ultimately really become that civilized home. We'll say even more than home, garden, Basilegani, come to my garden. A garden is more than a home. Garden is a beautiful place, a beautiful home. A beautiful home where you're not just there to have a roof over your head and a home that protects us from the elements, but rather a home that's also a beautiful, nurturing place a healthy home that's bright, that has a vibe to it, that, that nurtures, cultivates, enriches everyone that enters that home. So the guidelines are there. The thing we need is not just the willpower, but the action. We have to execute. That is our challenge in our times. The execution of bringing this into reality in a real viable and practical way. Every one of us can do it. And I've been blessed, thank God, I've been around people that have always been proactive, who always looked of how, not, oi, there's a problem, but how do we solve? How do we find an opportunity, even when there may be a difficulty? And I've tried to always convey that message because it's in my gut, it's in my, in my DNA as I picked it up. And I feel it's such a vital component. So often you meet people who, the voice of resignation, oi, I can't anymore. I can't handle it, it's too much for me. And sometimes justifiable. But we cannot give up. And we need people, to, we need each other 
to encourage us in this battle. And recognize we can win every battle, but only when we have an attitude that we are winners, and we are leaders, and we're proactive. It's very easy to become part of the group that says, uh, you know, let someone else fight this battle. I can't anymore. That's not acceptable. And I understand if someone says to me they just don't have the energy, I'm not going to be, obviously, um, angry or disturbed. Well, disturbed may be frustrated, but you're doing yourself a dis- an injustice. We need you. You need us. We need each other. We need to join forces in this approach. And as I always tell people, light is always more powerful than darkness. You're not going to let your dark. I'm not going to let your darkness convince me. So our attitude has to be one of a positive one. We are light bearers. We're here to carry light. Of course, there's always reasons. There's always excuses for why we can't do something, why it's too difficult, why someone else, I'm too small, I have too much on my plate. But remember, how much energy is being expended on fighting demons and fighting darkness? It's so sad. We have so much to give. We have so much to offer. Each of us has unbelievable potential. And as I often quote Oliver Wendell Holmes in his sad poem called The Voiceless, alas to those that die with their songs still inside them. No, no, no. We cannot allow that. That's, I'm adding that. He doesn't say that. We cannot allow that. You have a song. I am fully committed. And bring all my resources, everything I have, my team, everyone that we know, and to inspire and to reach, to make sure you sing your song. But you need to be committed as well. And you need to help others as well. When you help others, sometimes it helps you sing your song. No, we cannot afford to live a life of quiet desperation. We have wings. We have to use them. We can soar. And be around people that have that attitude, and you'll see it empowers. So here's what I say as we are about to enter in a few days from now as we prepare for this 3,330th anniversary of this historical event. I say let us make a commitment right here and now, each one of us, to each other, to ourselves, to not betray the cause, to not betray the purpose, not to but not betray ourselves, to dare, to have the chutzpah sometimes, the nerve, to make a move, and not retreat and say, I don't know what to do, and get paralyzed in the process. This is a time when we have that power because every year, as I often mention, time is like a spiral. We come to this point, we get all the energy that was there at Sinai the first time in a new way. So we're going to scrounge this opportunity. This energy comes to us in these days. Let us tap into them. Let's excavate them and internalize them and make sure that we actually get empowered enough to be able to actually bring some more civilization to our little world, to our little corner in the world, And from there it extends. You'll be surprised when you start committing to something like this, how it enriches your life. When you wake up in the morning, you go to sleep at night, the pettiness, the nonsense, the the, the distractions become less overshadowed and become almost meaningless in the light of this of this type of commitment and this type of initiative. But we have to take the initiative. So civilization, my friends, is the, healthy, the healthiest version of how life should be lived. And that includes your own personal life and how you interact with others. The most you can be, the best you can be. And the best, according to the guidelines of the blueprint that teach us these levels, these, the standards of virtue and justice and kindness and compassion and all the seven emotional attributes that I spoke about before. It's so easy just to give in to your own temptations, to your own whims, to your own comfort zone, to your own instant gratification. It's very easy. You don't need any effort. This takes effort. But this effort yields tremendous results. No effort? So we all gravitate back to our comfort zones, to low standards, selfish behavior, sometimes bordering or going or spilling over into destructive behavior, hurting others, sometimes not even maliciously. Where you have the other option is, no, I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to make a move. I'm not going to be an observer. I'm going to be a participant. I'm not going to be a bystander. I'm going to be an initiator, proactive.
That too is part of a healthy organism. That's what human beings thrive on. Look what, when people, children and adults and teenagers, when are they most excited? When they initiate something. When they take part, not just they're following someone else. Challenge them to do a project. Even for whatever, at whatever age, according to their level. There's no greater satisfaction that makes them a healthy human being. That's also part of civilization. Not being self-absorbed, but really looking, focusing on actualizing your potential. Actualizing in the form of, whether it's arts or music, or writing, or communicating, or volunteering, or just sharing something, being compassionate. When you challenge yourself and challenge others to be that way, tremendous results come out of it. Tremendous power is generated through that type of behavior. So that's yet another part of the healthy civilization. And if we need more and more details, I'm sure I can list them more. I mean, I think, I think that I made the point. Let me just conclude with this. I am, uh, I, uh, what can I say? I love human beings. I do. I love the human race. I'm not sure if I'm wired that way or I just condition myself. I'm not positive. But I'll tell you what I love about it. Life can be so beautiful. Life has such potential. I meet people, unbelievable that they have inside of them. And you'll say, one second, is he naive and unrealistic? No, no. I've seen also pain. But still, with all that I've seen, I've seen how bad people can treat each other, how people can hurt each other, abuse each other in horrible ways. Yet I still believe and see the soul that is so beautiful. Now, if someone's a criminal, they should be put away. I'm not being... Now even saying, oh, you know, it's so beautiful, well, free, everything is forgiven. No, 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 no. Hurting another person is not forgivable. Because you cause damage, especially generational. There are things to do to remedy, but it's not just, we're going to look the other way. But in the overall picture, especially when we look at our children, who have yet to enter the world, have yet to be corrupted and jaded and so on, such beauty. Think about it. Even in yourself, as much as you may think yourself as an ugly person, a person that has these deep, dark secrets, and we all have our skeletons, and we all have those moments where we really are not proud of ourselves and have a lot of shame. But there's another side. There's your soul. Such a beautiful soul. And by virtue of the Creator, yes, Creator, you have purpose and design, and you have potential. So what are you going to focus on? What are you going to embrace? The darker part? Or the beautiful part? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. You'll say, you know, I would love to embrace the beautiful. And just keep gravitating back there. So do something about it. It's not out of your control. Do something about it. Like what? Find new friends. Go to a new class. Initiate something. Do something about it. It's sometimes a small step, but a shift. Very easy to go back into the rut. But that means that you're letting your comfort zone, you're letting your patterns and routines become you. What has happened to you is becoming you. You have the power to stand up and change that. You say, I don't have the strength. Reach out to others. Say, I want to be part of something. Go to somebody that you feel that is doing a good project. Say, I want to be part of this project. I want to hang out with you guys. Give me a job to do. I want a responsibility. Volunteer. If you get paid... By all means, if you're looking for something, contact us. Contact me. We have plenty of projects. And you know something? We can brainstorm and maybe create more projects. Many people call me and give me advice what I should do. Okay, I appreciate that. There's a lot of ideas to do. But if someone came and said to me, I have an idea and I want to be part of it. I want to do part of it. And here's what I need from you and we need a team. Everybody has unbelievable strengths. So here's, here's no excuse. You're hearing this invitation straight from me. We, the Meaningful Life Center, myself, our team, you reach out to us and you have something to say and we, or you say you have some project, we'll look to find something. So there's no excuse. There's many ways today. We have technology. We have things that are easy to do. But it's a shift. It's a movement toward change. It's a movement toward initiating change. A movement toward being a cause, a influencer, instead of being an influencee. As I always say, 
If you're not busy influencing someone else, you're going to be busy being influenced. And by what? We don't know. It could be something good, it could be something not so good. If you're not busy living, you're busy dying. To uh, paraphrase another poet of ours. So my friends, this is the commitment that we all have to make. And I hope you call me on it. And I hope that each of us, each of you, and everyone, wherever you may be, takes these words to heart, uses this 3,330th anniversary to actually change something. Everyone have a very blessed week, a very blessed holiday. My tradition, my mentor, my mentors always said, should be Kabbalah Satera receiving this mandate, the Torah Besimcha, with joy and Beprimius, internalized. So it becomes part of who we are, that we own it, integrated in within our system. So until next Wednesday, please have a very beautiful holiday. Make sure also, in 1980, my great teacher and mentor, the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, called upon men, women, and children all to attend the reading of the Ten Commandments because the Medrash says that it's recreating exactly what happened at Sinai. So even newborn infants to go to a synagogue to hear the Ten Commandments, that's this Sunday morning. I'm sure there's synagogues near you. If you need help in finding one, again, contact us. Please see us as a resource, as an ally, as a uh, partner with you in whatever it is that we're doing toward making a more meaningful life, creating a more civilized world, a more humane world, a more healthy world, ultimately leading to the healthiest epitome of health in the new age that we call the messianic age, the age of knowledge, the age of spirituality, where there also will continue to grow, but then will grow not from unhealthy to healthy, but from healthy to even more healthy because it's an endless journey. And please write to us, comment, share, like, pass this on to everyone out there, and may we all together create this cumulative energy that can ultimately tip the scale and create the spiritual revolution after the agricultural, industrial, and computer, and technological revolution, information revolution, the spiritual revolution that will create a transform this world into a divine home, the healthiest society, possible. Thank you, everybody, and be well.